This episode of the Alley on the Run show is brought to you by Aftershocks. Welcome to the Alley on the Run show. I'm Allie Feller, and every Thursday I talk with inspiring men and women who lead interesting lives on the run and beyond. And while running is what brings us all together on these episodes, I'm looking for a little more. So join me every week to learn about the decisions people have made to get exactly where they are today, both the good ones and the bad ones, and how running has factored in. Today, my guest is Julie Brazitis, a good friend of mine. Julie's a video and creative lead at Google. She's a yoga instructor and she's a top honors graduate from Syracuse University. I wanted to bring Julie on the show today because she is perhaps the kindest person I've ever met and I want to be more like her in that way, but also because she's someone that I think many women can relate to, myself included. That's because Julie has struggled with perfectionism her entire life. She was a competitive gymnast growing up, but a spinal injury took that from her. Ouch. She's battled eating disorders, alopecia, ulcerative colitis, and an unhealthy relationship with running. Julie shares what it's like to have a really lovely, very privileged life, but to be deeply unhappy. She talks about what it felt like when she realized that on paper she had it all, but that she was living someone else's dream. And she talks about getting offered her dream job as an NBC page out of college and shares why she turned it down. There's a lot in here that I think will have many of you nodding along, myself included. So without further ado, let's welcome Julie Brazitis. All right, Julie Brazitis, welcome to the Alley on the Run show. I am so excited to be sitting here with you today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Allie. It's so good to see you. All right, we're going to get into so much good stuff. You let me know that nothing is off limits today, so we have a lot (laughs) to get into. But first, start us off with a warm-up. Tell us who you are, where you're from, and what you do. Great. Um, Hi, everybody. My name is Julia Brozitis, and I am a current New Yorker. I live in the West Village. Um, I'm originally from Pennsylvania. I am a brand and creative lead at Google, um, and I'm also a professional yoga teacher here in Manhattan. So it's great to great to be here. I met Allie through yoga many years ago, so it's great to see you. It's been a little while. I know. Yeah, you're my you're the handstand queen of the world. <laughs> I used to just look up from my little lowly child's pose, watching you hang out in handstand for 19 years, and <laughs> wishing that would be me. And it's still not, but you know. Well, I I was a gymnast, so I have an unfair advantage. All right. Well, that's a great place to start. Let's talk about young Julie because you were a gymnast. (laughs) You you started off, you were like a competitive gymnast. Yeah, I think I was born with a very unusual amount of drive um, at a really young age. And I fell into gymnastics probably at the age of like four or five because at first my mom put me in dance and I discovered very quickly that I had no moves and no rhythm. (laughs) I was pretty stiff, um, you know, and strong. So gymnastics was a much better fit. And, you know, one thing led to another and pretty quickly I started competing. Um, So I loved it. It was a huge part of my life growing up. All right. But what is is youth gymnastics? I I think of youth gymnastics and I think of competitive and I think I know it's ice skating but I'm like Nancy Kerrigan Tanya Harding (laughs) what is the youth competitive gymnastics circuit like is it intense or is it just like a fun 
hobby? Yeah, you know, I think it starts out as fun. I think it's a really great way to get kids in tune with their bodies and um, know how to move and how to fall in particular. Um, but as soon as you get competitive, it gets a little it gets a little intense. Um, you know, so at the age of seven, eight, nine, ten years old, you're up in front of judges being judged on how perfect you are and how um, how much better you are than other people. So even though it kind of it poses as a team sport, it's very much an individual sport, and it's something that in- requires an intense amount of physical commitment and also um, mental commitment. I love what you said about learning how to fall. That sounds mm-hmm. kind of poetic. Yeah. Well, you know, in gymnastics, you fall a lot. You know, um, I would practice for pretty much five hours a day, six days a week. So, you know, just physically, the behind the scenes work is very intense. And during that time, like everything looks a, a little messy, you know, when no one's watching, when you're learning new things. And what happens is like you learn if you fall on your butt, never put your arms behind you so you don't blow out your shoulders. So I think that, you know, for a lot of other sports, it can be a really great foundation for um, just how to move and, and how not to get hurt. And isn't that kind of a metaphor for life that when no one else is looking, it looks kind of messy, but then we only see the pretty finished product and all the perfect backflips and oh, yeah, the execution. Absolutely. All the perfect handstands on Instagram. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So how did you, you said you were born with all this drive. So as you're a competitive gymnastics, how did you do with that pressure and with the idea of needing to be perfect? Yeah, you know, I think that early on, it was very motivating for me. And, um, you know, it was, I had a couple of incredibly good coaches early on in my gymnastics career that really helped me harness my, my strengths, um, and to really play them up in all of my routines. Um, I will say that over time, it became more difficult because um, I got injured. So there were a bunch of injuries that I experienced, um, you know, kind of between the ages of like 11 and 14 that really set me back and each one kind of set me back further. So, um, you know, there was a a strong period in there where it was much tougher um, to, to be in the sport and to be happy in it. Didn't you break your spine? I did, yeah. So that was my career-ending move. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I actually fell on my butt during a floor routine, and I thought I just had whiplash. And the thing about gymnastics, and I think a lot of elite sports, is that you're always kind of in pain. So even if you're injured, you're not always sure if you're injured. And pain is almost like a sought-after thing. It's very masochistic. And um, I didn't realize that it was broken. So I had to go to the doctor after a couple of months and realized that my lower lung bar had a bunch of stress fractures so it was um pretty um pretty dramatic for me at the time at that young age yeah that's a rough age anyway Mm -hmm. and then to have the one thing that you're all in on taken away from you how'd you deal with that it was it was hard um I I do think that it was one of the greatest losses of my young life and um you know one thing you know another thing that happened so I I know that we've you and I have spoken a lot over the years about autoimmune conditions and and all of that and as soon as I broke my back my hair started falling out so the year that I got injured was sort of like this um you know very dramatic shift of having to leave the sport and also having my body go through um a lot of um just real ailments that I had never dealt with before. So it was a, I grew up very quickly during that time. So the hair falling out, was that connected? Was that a stress thing? Why did that happen? I think it was a stress thing. You know, like the more that I've learned about autoimmune, um, I had alopecia areata is what it was. So like my, it would kind of just fell out over time, the hair on my body and on my head. So I was going into high school, you know, very challenging times. So it was, um, it was very interesting. And I think looking back, it's actually what has made me 
um, I think so incredibly motivated to help others now. Um, but during the time it was, I can't say that I was the happiest little girl around at 14. So were you, I mean, are we talking like all your hair fell out or like clumps falling out? Cause I'm looking at you now, you have this like long, freaking <laughs> gorgeous blonde hair that most people would absolutely envy. So what, what is that like? Well, you know, I think it would have been better if it all fell out, but it was like clumps. So oh. it was like just like a chunk here, a chunk there. So I had all these bald, bald spots and, you know, I wasn't, um, I was very like ashamed of it. So I would wear hats and bandanas and such. And people thought I had cancer, but um, it was really just alopecia. And it was, it probably took about a year and a half for, year and a half to two years to grow back. And I had to get a lot of steroid injections in my scalp and um, tried a whole host of different medications. And um, thankfully, nothing's happened since then. So it was a one-time deal. Gosh, I, it's so funny that, I mean, maybe this is outdated now. I always felt like people are like, oh, high school, the best years of your life. <laughs> I look back lie. and I'm like, <laughs> I would not relive those. Like I had a great high school experience. I still, I mean, I had horrible cystic acne that I didn't know what it was. I would get these just welts on my head that were so embarrassing. Like kids are mean. So mean. So, okay. So were kids mean? I hate, I don't want to know the answer. Were kids mean to you? Yeah, it was a rough time. Um, you know, I went from being, I, I also, you know, went from being this very cute little, beautiful little gymnast to, I sort of lovingly call myself Shrek during high school. It was, um, you know, it was a bit of a bit of an ogre, not really sure of my own body. Um, I went through puberty a lot later than most of the girls. So um, I was still figuring a lot out in high school. And yeah, I mean, I think that was my first real encounter with really mean girls. Um, you know, so I, I went through the ups and downs of what that looks like in high school. It's not all that different from the movie. Um, I think most of us can see a lot of truth in, in the movie Mean Girls. Um, but yeah, I had a lot of those experiences and um, it made me very clear on the kind of people I want to have around in my life. Yeah, well, I think you're literally the nicest person I know. Like, I've <laughs> never heard you say a bad thing about anyone. You, you know, for someone who's been on the other side of the Mean Girls, you're the you're so kind. So I think, you know, what do you say to people? I mean, I think most people listening aren't in high school or have been through it, but maybe have kids in high school yeah. or kids growing up. What do you say to either the mean girls or the people on the receiving end of the mean girls? You know, I think I can relate more to the people on the receiving end of the, the mean girls, but really my advice, it's going to sound very cliche, is to just stay true to yourself um, because it gets really good on the other side when you're a good person and you follow your gut on who you want to be around and what you want to do with your life and stay focused because when you become an adult, you get to choose and when you become an adult, you look back and realize everyone was Shrek in high school. <laughs> <laughs> like, I th I thought I was cool. I thought I, like, dressed great. I look back and I'm like, <laughs> you were wearing an Elmo t-shirt and you were 16. Like, that's not cool. So, yeah, we all we all have a little bit of an inner or outer Shrek, whether or not uh, we see it or other people see it. Lots of layers, like an onion. <laughs> exactly. Um, okay, so you're in high school. Your hair goes back. Yay. 
you don't have mm-hmm. gymnastics anymore. Was there something else that you found to sort of fill that void? Yeah, I found lacrosse. So um, lacrosse, a little different. It was very different. <laughs> um, you know, it, it, it's funny. My my dad was just telling the story to my boyfriend. Um, he was like, um, "Yeah, when she first started playing lacrosse, she would score all these goals and look upset about it because gymnastics just makes you feel like you're never doing enough." Ooh. And I was like, "Yeah." So the first year, I was a little, you know, a little intense with it, but. Um, it was a really liberating sport because what I realized is that I could have fun um, and that team sports meant that if I dropped the ball, it wasn't the end of the world. Um, so I really learned during that time to loosen up and to use my athleticism um, for something that brought me a lot more joy. And it ended up being a very successful um, four-year career for me in high school. So I had a blast. Well, I'm impressed that you were able to go from something like gymnastics to lacrosse, which is not only a contact sport but it's also a lot of hand-eye coordination I mean so is gymnastics I guess but Mm -hmm. like I would never be able to catch that little ball in that little net on the end of a stick that is very impressive to me I bet you would no I'm scared of the ball (laughs) I like I can't even I can't do dodgeball even bowling I'm a little bit uneasy around anything involving a ball I run the other direction so definitely not well I'll take you out in Central Park sometime and we can play catch no just teach me how to do a handstand (laughs) okay I know I'm a hopeless cause, but that's really all I want. Okay, fair. Deal. Okay, so you play lacrosse. You're doing well in high school. Mm-hmm. You go to Syracuse University, that's which right. I'm not at all bitter about because it's not like I applied and didn't get in. It's <laughs> fine. No, it, it's all good. It's really cold up there. So yeah, it's really you, cold. You avoided some four very gruesome winters. Yeah, well, and I should say, I didn't not get in. I got into the school. I just didn't get into the Newhouse school. Oh, Newhouse, okay. And I was like, I'm not chancing it. I'm not going to your cold-ass school and hoping I can transfer in. Yeah, I get it. I went to the the balmy state of Connecticut instead. Yeah, Uh, it's basically the tropics down there. (laughs) Yeah. So you go to Syracuse. What what were your plans, hopes, and dreams when you went there? You know, so I went in, um, I did get, I did go to the Newhouse School. Uh, Yeah, so sorry. I can do a handstand. Um, I can do a handstand, 15 (laughs) minutes. Um, Yeah, so I went to Newhouse and, you know, early on, um, I wanted to get into television. So that was really my goal. I wanted to be a writer. And I also was very confused going into my freshman year because I was kind of like, well, I, I had these like big dreams of writing and being on TV. And I also feel like I should go be a lawyer because I'm smart and I should just, you know, go to law school. So I, I had a lot of conflicts going into college. And thankfully, Syracuse was really um, easeful and like double and triple majoring. So I was able to focus in some different areas um, on top of journalism. And um, yes, yeah, so that was kind of my goal going in. And then coming out, I still had the same sort of the same aspirations. So that's really how I set out to interview after I graduated. All right. Well, I'm very interested in this idea of the inner conflict you mentioned, because I have the exact same thing Mm. of, I really want to do this, but I feel like I should do this. And Mm -hmm. it sounds like that's sort of been a lifelong battle for you. Absolutely. Uh, How is that something you deal with? And coming out of college, what did you decide to do? Yeah, so what I will say is that inner conflict has been a pretty lifelong battle. Um, I think a lot of us kind of can, you know, we have sort of like a an inner soldier that wants us to keep achieving and marching forward and, you know, another part of us that wants some freedom and some creative expression. So um, I, I've always battled that, and I think that that was my trap for a long time too. So, um, you know, for that decision coming out of school, it was – Actually, I was handed my dream job at the time, um, and I was also handed a job at Google. So I was, it was very much a, you know, 
one side of me decision was like, oh, Google's practical. I should go in that direction. And the other side of me was like, well, you know, F it. I just want to go do what I want to do. And I was very conflicted. And I ended up going with Google. So what was the dream job? I wanted to be an NBC page, like like Kenneth on 30 Rock. And ultimately, I think I wanted to go to the Today Show or work with SNL in some fashion. Um, I don't think I really knew exactly, but I thought that that would be a nice catalyst for um, for a career in that field. And I ended up choosing Google because they gave me benefits and a much better salary. So it was, you know, something, um, you know, that I was able to do to take care of myself. And at the time, I was also very sick. So that's when I was, um, I had just been diagnosed with ulcerative colitis, and I knew I needed health care. So that was, uh, you know, a big part of my decision. Ah, the decisions we have to make. All right, well, we're going to talk about the ulcerative colitis stuff in a bit. Mm -hmm. Tell me about the decision-making process. I mean, you said the healthcare. Are you the type of person who was like reaching out to everyone you know with what should I do, or do you keep it very bottled up and internal? Um, I, I'm i pretty internal when it comes down to really big decisions. I don't think like getting a lot of opinions is really a great way to make a decision. It's a great way to make yourself crazy. That's what I second do. second guess yourself, yeah. <laughs> and it's horrible. Yeah, it's it's like, it's just a trap don't go down that rabbit hole um, because everybody is going to, you know, give you the best that they can from their own perspective. I definitely leaned on my family a lot during that time. And, you know, I remember I was sitting in my family's basement and my brother Kevin and I were talking about it and I was kind of going back and forth, probably crying because I, you know, was just like, so what do I do? And he said to me, well, even though, you know, NBC may be your dream, may have been your dream, um, you know, sometimes dreams can change and that's okay. It's okay to, to move forward and not feel bad about what you leave behind. And, you know, I, I, I took that to heart. Well, let's clarify that. To become an NBC page, we had a guest on the show actually a couple weeks ago, Yosef Herzog, mm-hmm. who's amazing. And he went through the page program and he explained, he's like, yeah, it's like harder to get into than Harvard. Yeah. So you get offered that yes. so you get in which already is super hard you also you're you're choosing between NBC page program and Google yeah neither are easy places to get hired mm-hmm. you have those two to choose between you choose Google how did you get the Google job so the Google job actually um, was a very big surprise I remember, do you remember monster.com? Yeah. So I had posted my resume on there because my cousin had gotten a job off of Monster. So I was just like, okay, I'll put my resume on, on Monster. And I had been very successful at Syracuse grade-wise, and I had been involved with a lot of different leadership um, positions. And you know, so I had for you know, a senior in college a pretty beefy resume. And Google at the time was expanding very rapidly, and they were looking for high-achieving graduates, mostly from Ivy League schools that could come and kind of learn anything and help them grow on the business side of the company. So I was reached out to by a recruiter from Google off of my monster.com resume. And when they first emailed me, it was kind of like this canned email. And I was like, I was like, oh, whatever. This is just is this spam. Yeah. Like, this is just spam, whatever. So I ignored like the first two or three emails. And then finally they called me and they were like, hey, have you gotten our emails? We actually want to talk to you. So I, I love like, that oh. Google had to hunt you down. I know. Isn't that, it's, 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 it's extremely, um, it's a little known story about me, but it was, um, you know, I 
arguably one of my potentially stupidest decisions was to ignore those emails. So lucky for me, they called and that's what kicked off my interview process. And at the time it was a very intense process. I had to go through an exam, a number of phone interviews. Okay. We need to slow this down. I am fascinated by this process. Okay. First, what year was this? What year did you graduate? This was 2000. Oh, so I graduated in 07. Okay. This this was was 08. Okay. So I'm like obsessed with the Google hiring process because mm-hmm. obviously I have seen the movie the internship <laughs> yeah and that's probably your life right have you seen that movie oh Vince yeah Vaughn? yep that that's exactly what we do all day long did everyone at Google like get together when that movie came out to watch it yeah we did and wait really um, so they well Vince Vaughn and Owen Wilson came to campus and I remember when they were promoting the movie they were around the New York office a lot so it was pretty exciting and great visibility for us yeah. So do you go down a slide to get from like one floor to the next? Yeah. You know, in my in, in my dreams at Google, that's possible. <laughs> OK. Um, I picture you being like the Rose Byrne character in that movie of just like <laughs> your calendar, very intense. Mm-hmm. But like, yeah. Anyway. All right. So the hiring process, you said first is an exam. Mm-hmm. Are we talking like aptitude test? It was a lot of actually math for me. Yeah. And I'm not a math person whatsoever because they were trying to hire me for like a more analytical role. And I had studied enough to get to get by and I was good enough at BSing like the word part of it to make myself sound really smart story of my life yeah I was like if I add a bunch of adjectives I sound smart (laughs) well it's like in in, in statistics class right you can pretty much solve any problem with beautiful words um, (laughs) and make any number look beautiful so that was what I did and I passed the exam and then from there, they've, um, they offered me on-site interviews out in California. And at that time, I had never been to California before. So it was really exciting for me. And then you get hired. You get offered. What was the job that you got offered? I was offered, what was I originally? I think I was like some sort of account associate. But okay. really what I was, was an 800 line answer person. So for our advertisers um, that were, we consider kind of like mom and pop shops, our small, you know, smaller, longer tail, they don't spend that much. I would answer the 866 line as Julie B at Google. And I had to answer phone support and chat support for pretty much the first year of my time. What at was Google. your line? Was it like, welcome to Google? This is Julie B. Yep. That was it. Really? Nailed it. Yeah. Wow. I love it. And you have like this big smile. It should have been a video call so people could see your face. But yeah, like in the internship at the end when they get the pizza shop, oh, it's yeah, like yeah. it was like those advertisers mm-hmm. that you were talking to. Exactly. It was super inspiring. Yeah. I, I can also, I have this gift where I can boil anything down to a movie involving Vince Vaughn, apparently. So yeah, yeah precisely. We'll just keep doing that throughout the conversation. <laughs> Great. I sound so smart. Okay. So you get hired. You've now been with Google for over 10 years actually yesterday was my 11 year anniversary wow yeah, so well congratulations years. thank you so it's a good place to work yeah it's it's a great place to work and you know I so I've the way that I talk about Google um you know I've had a very positive time in my career there but what I think has kept me there for this amount of time is not just the fact that it's a wonderful company and I really do believe in their mission but also they really enabled Um, me to pursue a lot of other passions in my life and have been very supportive of the balance that I've tried to strike. So I've um, really milked that as much as I possibly can. And that's amazing. And I think more companies should follow suit as they can because it's obviously um, so important and you've taken a really important kind of wellness journey, which sounds so like woo woo, but and, and we'll get into that. So 
I want to know. I know we all say no regrets, live with no regrets. Mm -hmm. Was there ever a time, especially in those early years, where you looked back and said, what if I had taken the job as a page? Oh, um, often. Yeah, very often. Um, You know, I, I look back and I know that at the time I made the right decision. And what I saw at the moment when I was deciding between NBC and Google is that the future was digital and everything was moving online. And Google very much has been at the forefront of that shift over the last decade that I've been there. So I do think looking back that I still made the right decision and I listened to my gut, but I do wonder. And I I think similar to you, have a lot of creative energy, love to write and um, love to be in front of people and love to inspire others and think about um, you know, how to articulate what I'm experiencing through um, you know, different forms of expression. And I think I would have been actually pretty successful at it had I chosen that path. So I wonder, but I try not to spend too much time ruminating over it. Well, and it's never too late. You can always, you know. Exactly. Never too late. You're, and, and what did your brother say? Dreams change. So maybe, you know. Exactly. You might end up as the next face of the Today Show. (laughs) Who knows? Watch your back, Savannah Guthrie. (laughs) Um, So one thing that I, you know, I feel like you and I have a lot in common in a lot of ways. And one of the ways that I really see is that we both, like I mentioned earlier, have this inner conflict of feeling like, what do I want to do versus what I should do? Mm -hmm. And then maybe convincing ourselves that those two things have to be the same. Mm -hmm. I want to go back to the time when you were in college yes so you you casually mentioned you're like oh yeah Syracuse lets you double or triple major so is it safe to assume that's something that you did yes um you're very you're a very good listener um (laughs) so yes um so I went in and the big reason why I chose Syracuse was they accepted all of my AP credits from from high school which that's going back a lot of years now thinking about AP classes but um they accepted a lot of those credits so I went in with some um, padding, so I was able to skip a few of my core classes, and I studied international relations, um, journalism, and also um, Spanish. So, same yeah. twinsies. I know, I love it. I'm, but I have to tell you, I only minored in Spanish because my mom told me to. Mm. Like I had no interest you in have doing a smart, that. Smart mom. Well, but I've never, I only use it when I get kind of drunk on vacation (laughs) and I try to order in Spanish and then I'm like, I probably sound like an idiot. And the next day, Brian's like, yes, you sounded like an idiot. Can you roll your R's? Yeah, I can totally roll my R's. (laughs) Can't do a handstand. But I, if I had had my way, I think I would have minored in something like maybe a political science mm-hmm. or something or business like something that I didn't really know a lot about yeah I was really good at Spanish in high school I took all the advanced Spanish classes whatever yeah. my brother was older than me and I was always in his Spanish classes which he hated and so when it was time to pick a minor my mom said to me she was like you should minor in Spanish yeah. because that's like the smart responsible thing to do and, and so it- I did and I hated it yeah. the only classes I ever dropped I took like a I remember it was like Shakespeare in Spanish. It was so hard. I lost sleep. I was so stressed. I just, I don't understand Shakespeare in English. To then try to do this in Spanish, like it was so, so hard. And not in a way that was like, I don't understand this concept. Let me figure it out. Just I couldn't get it. Mm-hmm. And I just remember being like, why am I minoring this? It's only because my mom told me I should. Yeah. And I didn't question it. Yeah. And like you... I think that's a great example of ignoring your gut. Right. Because of what I felt I 
should do. I still look back and I'm like, that was a dumb minor because I already knew enough Spanish. Mm -hmm. I didn't need like, obviously you can always get better and I don't really remember much of it now, but so you're in college, you go in with AP credits, which Mm -hmm. I tried to do that too, but turns out when you get a two on your AP exams... (laughs) That doesn't translate. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember the scale anymore. So two sounds great still to me. No, it was one to five. One and to you five. got college credit if you got like a four or a five. And yeah. I got all twos and threes. So again, it's fine. I'm not bitter about all of your success. <laughs> I am excited for you. Um, but so college, you have like 14 majors and minors. You're, you know, you're in a sorority. You were vice president. I was the vice president of risk management. What is that? Um, basically, it just meant that I was everybody's least favorite person. Um, <laughs> so. But wait, if you were the rule enforcer, you're my favorite person. Yeah, I, I was love the, rules. I was I was the rule enforcer. So like basically, I couldn't drink at any party. I had to be like sober at all events to make sure that everybody was well taken care of. And if anybody got hurt or caused a ruckus, I was held responsible. Oh, yeah. So it was a great year. It's that time. Time for a word from our sponsor, Aftershocks. All right, so I'm back on the run. I'm like three months postpartum, and I'm so excited to be spending my Saturday mornings outside running again. But getting back into shape is hard, and I wouldn't be able to do it without my best running buddy, my Aftershocks wireless headphones. I love running with music. Very few things motivate me more than the Greatest Showman soundtrack, so I love pumping some sweet Zac Efron jams into my Trex Air headphones and getting outside with a pep in my step. These headphones don't weigh me down, which is good because postpartum running already feels clunky enough, and a single battery charge lasts six hours, which is good because let's be honest, I cannot for the life of me remember to charge things these days. Fortunately, my aftershocks have never given up on me. I may not feel like my old running self, but thanks to my favorite, sturdiest, most trustworthy gear, my headphones, I'm getting there. So I want you feeling your best on the run. Go to ontherun.aftershocks.com to get your Aftershocks wireless headphones. And bonus, go there and you'll save $50 on all endurance bundles. That's ontherun.aftershocks.com. Now let's get back to the show. Okay, so tell me about how you started running and your relationship with running during that time. Sure. Oh, that's a really um, interesting question, relationship with running. Um, so running for me during college, um, I was also playing club lacrosse, um, you know, at the same time. So I kind of saw it as, okay, well, like, I'll go for a run to get in shape for lacrosse. And it was my alone time. So I'd get up early in the morning, pretty much at like probably 6 or 6.30, um, even during the cold winters. And I'd go for anywhere from like an eight to probably 13 mile run, depending on, on, on the day and how much time I had. So, you know, at first it became, um, a a really great and positive outlet for me. And I was relieved to just get my shoes on every single morning, hit the pavement and you feel like the cold air in my lungs. And there was something really, to me, very grounding about it and very clarifying mentally. I'm sure you can relate oh, yeah. to a lot from. <laughs> and I'd say that my relationship to running over time became a little too obsessive. And I'm, I, I don't talk to a lot of runners now, but I imagine that there's like an obsessional obsession to it because I definitely experienced that too, where if I hadn't gone for a 10 mile run, I would, wouldn't feel like I was like doing enough that day or, um, you know, like I had completed a, a day of my life. And so it became almost like a trap after a few years. Even though you were still playing lacrosse, mm-hmm. 
very high achiever across the board. Was it a body thing? Was it like a calories thing? What was the compulsion behind it? I think a bit of it, you know, I was in a sorority um, and Syracuse is actually not a very easy school socially. It's, um, it's has a lot of sharp edges. And what does that mean? Sharp edges. Um, you know, a lot of girls who have eating disorders, a lot of a lot of attitude from like, you know, the sort of Long Island crowds, New York City crowds. And I was from Pennsylvania. You know, I was just like a little like popped polo wearing girl from from Pennsylvania. We're the that, same. Yeah. I was Swap just, New Hampshire and Pennsylvania and Syracuse and Quinnipiac. And yeah, yeah. it's just I mean, same, same. It's great minds think alike. But did you ever do the double popped collar polo? I did once for a preppy party for my sorority. Yeah, we used which to do I was sober at. <laughs> All right. So you, the sharp edges the the compulsion so I think that you know part of it really was to sort of just maintain um weight and you know kind of fit in in that regard I think also you know it it came from I was dealing with a lot and you know I now looking back I understand a lot more of what I was potentially going through mentally but you know I had experienced a lot in high school um you know between breaking my back losing my hair all my body changes and um, and also my sophomore year at Syracuse, I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis and, you know, running and, um, <laughs> and uh, autoimmune tummy issues definitely don't go hand in hand. But I felt like it was the only thing that I c- could control because my body just for many years had been abandoning me and running was the one thing that I was like, okay, this is the one thing that I get to have. And in a lot of ways, I think that was why I leaned on it so heavily. And how long did you keep running? Did you run throughout college the entire time? I did. Yeah, I actually, I ran through college and I ran through most of my 20s until eventually my knees told me, yeah, you're done. (laughs) All right. Tell me about getting diagnosed with ulcerative colitis, Mm -hmm. the sister disease to Crohn's. Yep. Uh, Tell me about getting diagnosed in college. Yeah, so when were you diagnosed, by the way? I was seven. You were seven. Oh, you're a baby. I can't even imagine. No, are you kidding? See, people say that. It's so much easier Mm -hmm. to grow up not knowing any different. Mm -hmm. Like, to me, it's so much easier to have all those years when you're young and you have your parents taking care of you. I can't imagine getting diagnosed as an adult. I, you know, I mean, even when I get flares as an adult, I think it's so hard to deal with. I can't imagine dealing with a diagnosis, especially in college. Yeah, it was um, it was really scary, and it actually the first um, moment that I realized that something was wrong when I was on a run was when I was on a run. Um, I remember I was running down towards um, South Campus at Syracuse, and I just had to go to the bathroom, and all of a sudden it just like came out, and it was all blood. And I was standing there on the side of the road, and I like thought I was dying. I was I don't know I don't know what's wrong with me. And then I made my way back to my dorm and like more blood came out and it was, it was a very abrupt, um, very abrupt thing. And you'd think that there would be some, you know, sort of like, I don't know, just little um, precursor to like, hey, you're not feeling well, you might want to go to the doctor, but it just hit me like a lead balloon. So I kept it quiet. Um, So I was pretty embarrassed by it. And I thought maybe that I had just, you know, had food poisoning or something. So I let it go for a few weeks, but it just kept happening. And it was always when I was running. So one night I came back from a run and I told my roommates what happened. And they were like, get in the car. We're taking you to the hospital. 
And um, I went, and even at the ER, they weren't really sure what was going on. So finally, I had to call my parents, which is generally what I do last, uh, just because I don't want to worry them too much. But they brought me home, and I went to see a gastroenterologist, and that's when I was officially diagnosed. And how did you handle that diagnosis? I was mortified, actually. Um, you know, I, you know, because you know how what what happens. You go to get a checkup, and they put a scope up your butt. You know, and I had never had anybody down there really before, so <laughs> it was, you know, for me, it was um, a really mortifying experience to even just go through that that whole initial, um, you know, doctor doctor visit. I was relieved to have the diagnosis um, because I had been feeling just so bad. And when you see that much blood coming out of your body, it's like, I'll do anything to make it feel better and to get some control back in my life again. So um, they put me on like steroid injections. And then I was also taking um, an oral steroid to try to just dry things up in there to get things back to balance. And have you had many issues with it since then? Yeah. So I had many flares through my 20s. And, um, you know, thankfully after that first bout, I got better, but it was pretty much every single year, not all that dissimilar from you. It's been like, it was pretty much every year I could expect a six month flare where, you know, I had to man mark every single bathroom, no matter where I went in the world and, you know, had to make sure that there was easy access. And, um, it was also plaguing, it plagued me a lot during my first years at Google. I will never forget you pulling me aside one day at Lion's Den. I don't know if you'll remember this, but I was sick. I was so, I was in such a bad place and you and I had pretty recently become friends and you said to me, you were like, listen, I know you're not going to want to. You were like, just wear diapers. Mm -hmm. And you were the first person that ever suggested that to me. And for years I would remember you saying that and I wouldn't do it because you said getting your diagnosis, having the appointments was mortifying to me, the idea of wearing diapers, even though no one would know and it would give me peace of mind. I refused to do it. It wasn't until I just had a baby and I feel great now, but I was like, you know, in the aftermath of childbirth, you wear a diaper sometimes. (laughs) And I was like, why haven't I been doing this when I have Crohn's and I thought of you. And I was just like, you know, Julie told me. And so now in the future, I will go that route if I, if I flare again. Um, but you were the first person that said that to me. And I remember it came from such a place of kindness and like, I've been there. Cause it's one thing my dad always tells me that too. Mm-hmm. My dad's always like, just wear a diaper. And I'm like, no, like that sounds mortifying. But from you, it was like, oh, I'm like, I'm looking at this gorgeous, kind, successful woman and she's had to wear diapers too. Yeah. Oh, I have like tears in my eyes. Um, I do remember that moment. And what I can say, well, first of all, I hope you never have to wear diapers. You know, I hope it never (laughs) gets to the point where you're going to have to resort to that. But um, I think after you poop your pants so many times, it's just, uh, you know, it's it's something that Mm -hmm. at least if you're out in public, you don't feel so mortified and you have some control over the situation if it happens. Part of me is like, welcome to the Alley on the Run show. (laughs) It always comes back to this. But part of me knows that there are people out there who have felt the way that you and I have both felt, either the mortification, the discomfort, the there's so much physical. Yeah. The physical and the emotional stuff that goes into it. So tell me about, um, you know, being in college, that's a tough time. How did you, you know, once you had your diagnosis, you go back to school, you're living with all these other girls. How'd you do? Well, you know, at first, again, it's mortifying, you know, and and it's something that I felt very ashamed of and felt very um, private about. 
But, you know, when you have one of these diseases, when you're in the bathroom, it's very hard to be quiet or private about it. So in a house with many girls in my sorority, you know, pretty much everybody had to know. And what it did, I think, you know, the first few years, I had to get used to it. And, you know, I had some, like, I remember I was actually interning here in New York City one summer at a PR firm. And I didn't make it to the bathroom. I was in the elevator of my apartment building and it just like came out and I have never been so mortified in my entire life. And I remember just going into the bathroom upstairs and sobbing and my best friend was there and she was like, you know, it's, it's going to be okay. And, you know, so that was a low point. But after that, I think that I just got the mental toughness to say, you know what, everybody, this is what I've got. And I'm dealing with this and it sucks. And if you're going to be my friend or if you're going to date me, you know, this is just what you're going to have to deal with. And if you're not okay with that, then we obviously can't be, you know, around each other too much. And it's amazing how people just don't care. Yeah. I mean, they, they, they you know, it's, it's not a problem if you have. In right a good way. Around. In a good way. Not yeah. that people like don't give a shit. No, yeah. people are not bothered by it. They're very and compassionate. Also, and I say this all the time, if you're going to have a disease like Crohn's or colitis, just hang out with runners because <laughs> runners have all pooped somewhere they didn't want to poop. So <laughs> really, runners are the best people to be around if you have a disease like this one. I couldn't agree more. We also, before we move on from the colitis talk, we have to talk about the connection of stress. You and I, again, I think we're very similarly wired in the high achieving, constantly, you know, feeling a lot of internal stress and pressure. Mm -hmm. Do you find a connection between times of stress and times of flaring? 100%. For me, at least in my body, what I've learned is that they are a thousand percent connected. And, um, you know, it was really, I remember I had had a really big flare um, a few years into Google, and I was moving to Brazil for a short amount of time um, for my job. So I was flaring, um, you know, I was incontinent at that point, and my doctor said, well, we're going to have to put you on prednisone if you're going to go down to Brazil. So I don't know if you've ever been on it, oh, but it's nasty. it's the worst. It's super Many nasty. Many times. Yeah, it's, it's a terrible drug. Um, but it helps you really quickly, mm-hmm. so there's you know, cost-benefit. But I went down to Brazil, and the Brazilian culture is incredibly... Um, compassionate and you know just passionate about life and love and balance and um, in a lot of ways wellness and when I was down there I started to see a lot of my own tendencies like hey I don't have to live this very hard charging sort of self-destructive like to the point of like overachieving life like I can actually enjoy it and, and take care of myself and um, that was really, as an adult, a, a big turning point for me um, in just realizing that there um, is a definite connection between stress and my body, but also another way to live. So how do you manage your stress now? Um, so now, uh, you know, so thankfully, you know, a few years ago, after I moved to New York City, I found yoga. And that was arguably the largest turning point in my life in terms of not just, um, you know, sort of balancing the stress in my body, but also really balancing my mind out. And as soon as I started practicing yoga more consistently, I started to notice that I didn't have flares anymore. So it's been a very powerful vehicle um, to maintain health. And what is it about yoga? Is it the physical practice? Is there, was there like a mental shift that stuck with you? 
It was both. You know, I, I, you know, yoga is in, it, in its, you know, purest form of moving meditation. So, you know, there's a lot of mental calmness that I've gained from, from yoga. But I would say that the biggest impact that it's made in my life is the um, sort of introspection work that I've done through a lot of my teacher trainings. And what I realized is that um, that internal conflict that you and I have spoke about earlier, that, you know, sort of like hard charging, want to achieve part of me and that other side of me that actually is very um, free spirited and laid back, um, have always been at odds with each other. And yoga has really helped me understand that about myself and also know that it's okay for, you know, when my, when my stomach is upset, it usually means that something is wrong, that I'm making the wrong choice for myself. So yoga has really taught me, um, you know, yoga and all the work that I've done inside of the yoga world has taught me um, how to listen to myself and have some leadership in my own life and confidence around my choices. And that's not easy to do, especially we live in this Instagram world where... Yeah. You can't wake up on a Monday morning without scrolling past a million Monday motivation, morning motivation, yeah. hustle, grind, you know, early bird catches the billions of dollars. Like it's really intense. And I, I can is. say that as someone who is married to one of the people who loves all that stuff. <laughs> like my husband thrives off of that. Mm -hmm. I sometimes thrive off it. Sometimes I'm kind of like, what if I don't want to hustle today? What if I want to slow down? Yeah. I love it. I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, Instagram, social media, I think that there is a lot of positive to it. I also think that there's a lot to it that can um, make a negative impact, um, even if it's trying to be positive. And one thing that I've learned, um, you know, I, I think maybe I just burned myself out at a, at a too young of an age, oh, yeah. um, which I'm sure you feel similar. <laughs> um, you know, just when you, you know, I, when I look back, it's like I just I worked so hard for so long. And, you know, what I've realized is that some of the best things to me that have ever happened have come when I'm not working that hard. You know, when I've you know, when I'm just relaxed and open and have some space to think and feel what the right choices are. Um, it's amazing how it's led me in the right direction. So I remember reading something that you wrote for The Huffington Post, mm -hmm. which was a very lovely piece. And I remember in it, you wrote that. Um, you had this idea that if you were your own worst critic, mm -hmm. that kind of no one else could be or no one else or nothing yeah. else could hurt you. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to me about that? Wow. That is a great question. I haven't read that article in a while. Um, yeah. You know, I, I actually can speak really specifically about that. I remember when I had broken my back and when I had my, when my hair was falling out, I remember I was you know, d just dealing with a lot of the social ramifications of losing my, my looks. And, um, and I remember sitting in my room in Pennsylvania and actually writing in my journal, like that exact thing. Like, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna work as hard as I possibly can. And at, you know, at, no one can hurt me if I'm, you know, my harshest critic. So I think that that was kind of the underlying motivation of my life up until the time that, you know, I started to practice yoga and realize that that was pretty self-sabotaging. Well, I was going to ask, are you still your toughest critic? No. That's hard to let go of. Yeah. I mean, I, at, at times, yes. I, I would say at, at times it, it definitely pops up and I feel it. Um, but I would say over the last five years in particular, um, you know, in te I, I'm a teacher of yoga. I, I teach now, and 
you know, there, what I've learned is that there are always going to be critics out there. There are going to be people that love, love you or me. There are going to be people that absolutely hate me and are going to talk about it. And if I actually want to be a leader and impactful in the world, I'm going to have to get used to it. And I'm also going to have to be my greatest cheerleader um, because the world isn't always as kind. And it's to my benefit to actually be my own best friend. All you need to do is talk to yourself the way you talk to everyone else. You're just like so kind and sunshiny to everyone on this planet. So I hope that's how your inner voice works too. It took me most of my life to get there. It's hard, man. It's like, and even with me, I I felt like I finally got to a place where I was starting to be nice to myself and then I had a baby and now I'm right back to telling myself how much I suck every day, how much I'm falling short. Like it's, it's tough and it's, I think it can be a little cyclical. So, but it seems like you've done a really good job of turning that corner and making yeah, it work but it's daily work you know yeah. it's not like it's just like all better after you make a decision to to be kind to yourself it it is definitely like when you feel yourself going down that rabbit hole pull yourself back up yeah. you're doing cling great. to the top yeah. to the little bit of light okay I want to talk about google stuff okay because like I said I'm very interested in Google. I think Google is great. I visit the website many times a day. <laughs> I hope that me all the things that I've Googled my god I mean, the amount I've been to Google in the past three months. I hope that you get like a cut of everything I know everything. (laughs) (laughs) You are Google. Okay. So we know how you got hired at Google. Mm -hmm. What right now, can you explain to me a little bit, just what is your role and what is the bulk of your day entail? Sure. So my role just changed. um, But I I can speak to the last few months um, because it's really led me to where I am now. Um, I just came off of a, of a rotation at Google at our headquarters out in Mountain View, California, where I was basically a public speaker on behalf of the company. And we have this really cool space on our main campus where we bring different advertising partners in. And um, I had the opportunity to meet with executive teams from different businesses from all around the world and um, talk specifically about brand marketing and creative uh, marketing uh, to, to their teams. So. It was a really cool opportunity to be in front of people on the stage very often, and um, I I learned a lot, and it led me to my new role now, which I just started a couple of weeks ago. And what is your new role? So my new role is I am managing a big global client, and I am their video um, and creative lead. So what that means is I advise them on um, how they can be investing their money on YouTube and also how they can be creating video for, for digital. All right. So I know that your role is pretty new, but looking back, we can look back just on the last couple years Mm -hmm. in general. What has been the hardest part of your job? The hardest part of my job, I would say it's probably two things. You know, the first is having to be in communication with dozens of people on any given day and keeping all of that organized and staying on top of, you know, just all of the relationships that I'm meant to manage internally and externally. And the second thing is actually just um, balance, you know, and, and it's being able to turn work off at the end of the day and strike those boundaries for myself. And, you know, the work itself is obviously very challenging, but you know, Google's a very, um, you know, you can access work at any time. We all have the internet. So it's, um, I've had to really learn to, to flex that muscle to create some space for myself. And what is the most rewarding part of your work? 
The most rewarding part of my work is definitely the people that I work with. Uh, you know, one thing that Google does really well is it hires really great people. Um, a lot of very smart, very humble, very hardworking, and very interesting people that every day inspire me to, um, you know, to be myself. And, you know, I, I can bring my whole self to work, which is amazing. Um, but they also inspire me to think really big and to continue pursuing a lot of what I love in my life. And speaking of all the great hires, any advice for getting hired at Google? <laughs> Work your butt off in college. Um. <laughs> so, well, we joke about like, yeah. you know, my husband loves this because my husband is, you know, he owns a company and when he hires, he's like, I don't give a shit about where you went to college. I don't care about your mm -hmm. GPA. But you just said work really hard in college. Does Google care about your, you know, your GPA, your major, your minor, all the on paper stuff? Yeah. So I think less and less over time because, you know, not everybody can graduate from Princeton with honors. Um, not that I could either. Um, <laughs> Couldn't even get into Syracuse. Yeah, you know, it's like, okay. Um, I mean, at the t when I was hired, it was just all Ivy League grads and, and me, Julie. I was like, okay, I definitely don't belong here. Um, but I would say, you know, definitely work very hard because when you are passionate about what you're working on and you really believe in something, I think that you're just much stronger in an interview. You know, if you're faking it, people can see right through it. So if you're going to be, if you're going to do it, you know, be real about it. All right. Now you're off to Seattle. I'm off to Seattle. I'm Tell me about that decision. Yeah. So it is a very bittersweet one. Um, I love New York City. I've been here for nearly seven years. It's about five years longer than I thought I would stay. Um, but the city captivated me, you know, from the get-go. And I'm moving to Seattle for a number of reasons. Um, so I was just out in California for a few months. And my rotation out there as this public speaker really opened up a lot of opportunity for me. And um, my boyfriend um, moved to Seattle a few months ago. So um, that, that had been on my radar. But I also knew that I wasn't going to do it unless it was going to be the right fit for me professionally and personally and all those things. And the stars kind of aligned. Um, a role opened up on an amazing team, and I decided to interview for it. And when it came my way, it was just, it was a no-brainer. So it's going to be, um, you know, really sad to leave New York City. But I'm very excited to start my new, you know, new life out there and also just be a lot closer to the mountains. Oh, God, that sounds amazing. And if you are listening and you live in Seattle, hit up Julie because she's amazing. And you will be so <laughs> glad that you became friends with her and brought her into your life. She's a ray of sunshine. <laughs> and Thank Seattle you. can be kind of gloomy, right? So it's nice that it's going to have you because you're very sunshiny. Yeah, it, it can be a little gloomy. But, you know, it's it doesn't get nearly as cold as it does here. <sighs> And I also, um, there's a lot of opportunity to be entrepreneurial out there, which is in the back of my mind heading there. Love that. And looking back, what would you tell young perfectionist Julie? Mm. I would say don't worry so much. You know, don't, just don't worry so much. It's, um, and enjoy. It's okay to actually enjoy your life. And then looking forward, you said lots of opportunity to be entrepreneurial. Mm -hmm. Is that something on your radar? Yeah, I, I, I think so. I, um, you know, it's been spinning in my mind for a while of really how I want to package a lot of what I've learned um, and share it with others. And, you know, I, as soon as I get out there, I want to start teaching yoga again. I think that'll be one outlet for that. But um, I'm starting to think about how I can make more of a 
one-to-one impact with people and also um, a, a more scaled impact um, you know, through other creative outlets. So more to come once I get there. Oh, I'm like jealous of the people in Seattle who are going to get to take your class. <laughs> I need to come visit. I've Please never been come. to Seattle, so yeah, come I'll put it on the me. list. Okay, fine. Done. Okay, so what we do next on the Alley on the Run show mm-hmm. is we wrap it up. We sprint to the finish. Okay, great. Are you ready for our rapid fire questions? Yes. What would your last meal on earth be? Pizza. Favorite TV show? Modern Family. Favorite movie? Oh, A League of Their Own. Greatest fear? Plane crash. Favorite yoga pose? Handstand. Obviously. Where was your first kiss? In the lobby of my house in Pennsylvania. Where was your most recent kiss? It was at the airport in Seattle. What will you miss most about New York City? Probably lion's den power yoga. What was the last thing that you and your boyfriend fought about? Fought about? Ooh. This is supposed to be rapid fire. What did we fight about? Um, Oh, my God. I don't even know what to say. Well, that's nice. No, our last fight was actually before um, before I made, you know, sort of my move to California. And we were fighting about um, probably something related to, you know, moving and fighting against New York versus Seattle. That was, yeah, that was probably it. Yeah, New York versus Seattle. I've I've had a lot of tears around that. (laughs) Best advice for people dating in New York City? Stay confident. Who was your childhood celebrity crush? Leonardo DiCaprio. If you could teach a private yoga class to anyone, who would it be? I think it would be, honestly, um, she's not here anymore, but Nora Ephron. Oh, what one word do you want to be remembered by? Graceful. What has been the best day of your life so far? Best day of my life so far. I think it was um, the first day I ever saw the Alps back in high school. Oh, why? That sounds so nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just it so be- pretty. Just so pretty. I remember we got there and my, my family went over there and we were at a Christmas market. And in the morning I woke up to the Alps. You know, all the Alps, the peaks of the Alps, and I had never seen mountains like that before. And I remember just thinking, I, I feel so lucky. Oh, now you get to go back to the mountains. I, I mean, different mountains, mountains, but mountains. Yeah, they, they remind me a lot of the Alps out there. Oh. So it'll be it'll be nice to reconnect. All right, I need you to tell me three things that you love about yourself. Wow, three things I love about myself. Um, I love my love for people. Um, I'm really proud of that. That I've kept that even through the thick of New York City. I really love um, my devotion to my friends and my family, and I'm always supportive of them. And I love my sense of adventure. Um, I think it keeps me me, and it's something that I'm embracing that much more as I get older. Awesome. The last thing I need from you is, since this is a running show, give everyone listening a reason to run today. To go see wherever you live or wherever you're traveling on foot, because you can experience it so much differently on a run. I love that. Julie, thank you for sharing so much with us here today. I went into this being like, I'm going to get the nitty gritty about what it's like to work at Google. And of course, instead, it was a beautiful conversation about just how to be a lovely person. And I'm so grateful that you're willing to share so much with me and with the world. And I think we all get to be better because of what you bring to the table. Thank you. I'm so grateful to have you in my life. Don't move. Stay. (laughs) (laughs) I'll be back. This was actually an hour long plea for me to get you to stay here. If you want, you can move to New Jersey, but no further. (laughs) 
I'll be bi-coastal. Don't worry. All right, deal. Take good care of yourself out there, Seattle. You're getting a good one. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Alley on the Run show. Julie always reminds me and encourages me to be a better person, so I'm sure I'll go back to this conversation often, and I hope you're inclined to do the same. But Julie also inspires me to be more bold and to speak my mind, and with that, it is time for my shameless ask of the week. If you're enjoying the Alley on the Run show, please go to iTunes and leave a rating and review for the show. It's quick, it's easy, and it helps me grow this show and make cool stuff happen, which we're definitely doing in 2019. And of course, big thank you to the hundreds of you who have already left ratings and reviews. I love you so very much. If you're just dying for more Alley updates, find me on Instagram and Twitter at Allie on the Run one and on the Alley on the Run Facebook page, which you should, of course, like and follow. Finally, put on your to-do list, buy a pair of Aftershocks wireless headphones. They're my favorite, and I know they'll be your favorites too. Go to ontherun.aftershocks.com for $50 off wireless headphone bundles. With that, go be your best self, and thank you for joining me today on The Run.